Today we are looking at Psalm 23 and we've been spending this summer, the, the month of June so far, and it's going to carry us well into August in a series, in a preaching series called Finding Your Voice, a study through your favorite psalms. The psalms that are your favorites are what we are talking about. Every Sunday uh, we dedicate a service, a sermon, to one person who said, this is my favorite psalm. And there's somebody here today who Psalm 23 is his or her favorite psalm. Psalm 23. And I'll say this, um, we still have room. We, we're filling up. We still have room. Bennett, I know you, you, you gave something to me. Let me know again. We still have room for one or two more. So look in your bulletin. You're going to find a yellow communication card. In that yellow communication card, somewhere there, say, this is my favorite psalm. And uh, uh, some, sometime during the service, indicate so, and we'll preach on, we'll dedicate a Sunday to it. So we still have space for one or two more. Um, so as we've been making our way through people's favorite psalms, we've been talking about a lot of things. We've been talking about how to ascend. I was reminded as I was worshiping here, as Bobby skillfully led us, and skillful worship is, is a theme in the psalms as well. As Bobby skillfully led us, I was reminded to ascend, to lift up my countenance, to lift my arms in praise to the Lord. And I could even feel my spirit being lifted up as we were singing. That's Psalm 121 about ascending, making a sacrifice of praise. We also talked about how we are, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Because you're fearfully and wonderfully made, we find ourselves like a Broadway chorus bursting out in song. You find a new song. Last week we talked about how to worship as we wait patiently for the Lord and we learn His ethics and His ways we wait patiently, and we also learn how to worship. Today, through Psalm 23, we're going to learn about shepherding, how to shepherd. You know, as I was preparing this sermon today, I'm, well, not today. <laughs> it was not a last-hour preparation. As I've been preparing this sermon for the last two weeks, um, I was really deeply convicted. The sermon did a lot for me preparing for it because in this passage, six verses, it's short, you get a picture of, the Good Shepherd. It's one of the most famous psalms. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If I had a little bit more foresight, I might have even asked, why don't we try memorizing this? And in the future, I'd like to, I'd like to begin a practice of Bible mem memorization as a church. Um, and we'll do that in the future. But this is, a good, this is a good chapter to memorize. The Lord is my shepherd. God is my shepherd. And as I meditated these last two weeks on what it means To shepherd and what a good shepherd is. I, I realized that um, I could be a better shepherd in different areas. I realized that there are areas that I could work on as well. And so it, it, it was encouraging. In some ways it was chastening and quickening. And I think as I talk about the metaphor of shepherding today, um, it'll speak to all of us, not just myself as a pastor, but all of us as shepherds, all of us in ministry, um, because I believe we're all ministers. And so I'm going to talk along three headings about how to shepherd. The first heading is the shepherd. I'm going to talk about the shepherd himself or herself. What it means to be a shepherd of your flock, your congregation, or of your family. In many ways, shepherding in the ancient or in the Middle East, even today, it's not that much different from corporate management, I guess. In a lot of ways, there are similar principles, management and shepherding. So we're going to talk about the shepherd, what it means to be a shepherd. And I think it might even help you, those of you that are in 
you know, quote, quote unquote, corporate management. The second heading is the staff. We're going to talk about the, the shepherding implement. Actually, the shepherding implements there too. There's the rod and the staff. Third is the table. We're going to conclude talking about and how appropriate today's communion Sunday. The last Sunday of every month here at Woven, we celebrate the Eucharist or the communion. And uh, it's, I just realized that right now, the table. And we'll conclude with the table. But we'll begin with that first heading, the shepherd, as we make our way through Psalm 23, verse by verse. The first verse is the famous verse. This we, we have to say this together. Psalm 23, verse 1, all together. Now, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Some translations say, I don't have any needs. The Lord is my shepherd, I don't lack anything. What's being communicated here is not the American spirit of self-sufficiency. What's not being communicated here is I can do it on my own, I can pull myself up on my bootstraps, and I did it my way, a song I've never liked. What's being said here is the Lord is my shepherd, therefore I don't have any needs. What it's being said is I belong to the Lord because I am a sheep that belongs to a pen, that belongs to a shepherd, I'm taken care of. I have nothing to worry about. I am good. Not because I'm good, because I'm independent, or I'm a maverick. And I was listening to a, a, a news story on, on, uh, on NPR this week about mavericks. Maverick, the, the, the word maverick, it comes from the rogue sheep that has no shepherd. It's on its own. No, there's no mavericks here. The Lord is our shepherd, therefore we have no wants. It's principally talking about belonging. I belong to a shepherd. I'm not a maverick sheep. I have a brand. <laughs> I belong to him. The principle of belonging is the source of our security. I'll say that one more time. The principle of belonging is our, is our source of security as Christians. One of my shepherds, since we're talking about shepherding, one of my shepherds is a black man who's in his 70s. And he's counseled and shepherded me through my own life issues and um, being an older man he sees the finish line before any of us he dwells on these things I guess that's what happens when you hit your 70s you think about life and death and you think about crossing the finish line well you think about the cloud of witnesses but he has a favorite saying that comes from something called the Heidelberg Catechism the Heidelberg Catechism the first question is this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort in life and in death? And for my beloved Dr. Willie Peterson, for him, he quotes the answer off the cuff from memory. The answer to that question in the Heidelberg Catechism is this, that I am not my own, but I belong. Body and soul, life and death, I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. I belong to him, and I am not a rogue sheep on my own, out there up by myself, that when I die like Voltaire, I have to turn and face the wall and say, I have to die alone, an infidel. No. For all of us who belong to the shepherd, 
we have something to look forward to, and that is we can see the shepherd again one day. That is our great hope. We belong. We belong. We belong. Sam, I know you're leaving, but you still belong. You belong to the same shepherd that we all belong to. And even when you're in Virginia, you will still, quote unquote, belong. <laughs> what does a good shepherd do? Let's read that next verse all together in a loud voice in verse 2. Ready? He makes me lie down in green pastures. So the good shepherd who we belong to brings us and brings us to lie down in green pastures. Actually, the word translated there from the Hebrew is not green. There is no green. The word deshe literally means grass or saplings or young grass. I guess grass is green because that's the only green you're going to see out there in the desert. In the Middle East, if you've seen movies or pictures, it's all brown. It's, 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 uh, it's khaki. It's drab. It's earth tones. It's, it's a beige palette. But occasionally you'll see sparsely grass. And I guess in the Hebrew mind, in the Middle East, it's green grass. It's there. He makes me lie down. And the point is, the point is, moving from a harsh desert to a better location. Greener pastures. It's not so much about the color as much as it's about moving to a place that's an oasis in the desert. It's about moving to a better place, a safer place. Uh, shepherds to this day, to this day, um, they still are nomadic people. They still have shepherds in the Middle East and they still travel looking it's almost like this lifelong search for greener pastures. This lifelong search for greener pastures. Now, I don't think we should apply that to say we, we should move constantly. I mean, one of us is moving. I think that we should apply that spiritually. In our souls, we're constantly thirsty, looking for better feedings, looking for greener pastures. I want to read something to you about green pastures. This was given, this book is, I treasure it. This was given to me by another shepherd, um, of mine, Garth Bolander, and he sits on the board for Gordon Conwell's Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary, and and got this book and gave it to me. It's personalized. It's autographed by the author, uh, by Tim Laniak, who teaches Old Testament at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary in uh, Boston. But I love this book. It's not an academic book. This is a simple book that he wrote while he spent years in the, or however long he was in the Middle East studying shepherds he wrote this book based on his study of shepherds real modern day shepherds and they're asking him why why what are you what why us we don't have an education we live out in the fields we're nomads what are you going to go back to tell the people in america about us actually a lot a lot for example greener pastures you know what it means green pastures means in the mind of a middle eastern shepherd where this scripture was written, green pastures means this. I'm going to read to you from this amazing book. I asked Uma Nabila how far her family roamed before the current national boundaries were, said, were set. She said they moved all over. They were, they were nomads. And for several years, they lived near Hebron. That sounds familiar. The ancient village known to the Bible's patriarchal leaders and herders is on the west side of the Dead Sea. It's a completely different region. I met other shepherds in my travels who drifted from Saudi Arabia all the way to Syria 
And I've discovered that driven by the prospect of famine, herding tribes may travel 1,500 miles annually with one goal in mind, greener pastures. 1,500 miles. I once, when I left New York to go to Seattle, when I was young, in my early 20s, that, that's a 3,000-mile journey. You're talking half the, the distance of, of the United States. 15,000 miles, I'm sorry, 1,500 miles looking for greener pastures. And when pastures flourish, the news spreads quickly to desperate shepherds. A poet scout runs with a message, follow me to rain-fed lands as yet untouched by any creature except the lark who fills the air. The land before a barren waste attired itself in green sprouts and burst into blossom after God washed away its crust of dirt. Greener pastures. The good shepherd is constantly prodding, leading us to greener pastures. My hope is to work well side by side with the master shepherd, with Jesus, so that we as a congregation can be led to greener pastures constantly. It's my, it's my, it's my, my occupation. I, I, how can I lead my people towards greener pastures? Greener pastures. Let's say you find those greener pastures. What do you do? Well, in verse, in the second half of verse 2, he leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Now listen to this. He leads me beside quiet waters. What does that sound like? Imagine that. And he restores my soul. And the funny thing about sheep is that they're restless animals. Laniac describes sheep as animals that are constantly moving. They're easily provoked. They panic easily. Overly sensitive. And what happens is when they find a greener pasture, and something soft to lie down that's cool. They settle down. They stop moving. Their souls are at rest. I am like the sheep. I am overly sensitive. I get easily stressed out. I'm constantly on the move. I can hear my daughter's voice around 1 a.m. with the thunder last night. She appeared like a little ghost in my doorway, in my bedroom. I, I nearly jumped out of my skin. And she crawled up into bed because she was scared because of the thunder. And one of the reasons I didn't get any sleep is because she moves around all night. She's constantly, whether she's asleep or whether she's awake, she's moving. And it's just like me. Constantly, I can't stay still. I am like the sheep, easily provoked. I panic easily. And I'm sure I'm not the only one here. Have you come today to church easily provoked, overly sensitive, usually on the move, panicking easily? I have a prayer for you. I have a prayer. And if you resonate with that, just close your eyes for a moment. I'm going to pause here and say this quick prayer. It's a good prayer. God, I am having trouble with personal relationships. I can't control my emotional nature. I am prey to misery and depression. I can't make a living. I feel useless. I am full of fear 
I am unhappy. I can't seem to be of real help to others. And perhaps it's because I belong to no one except myself. And that hasn't gone so well. I know somewhere in my heart that only you can restore me to a place of peace if I'm just willing to humbly ask you to help me to to trust and depend on you today. And so, Lord, I make a first step to believe today. I make a first step to make you my shepherd. And so from this day on, lead me beside quiet waters and restore my soul. In Jesus' name. I hope that that was your prayer today or somebody's prayer. People have experienced supernatural peace. A perfect example is Louis Zamperini, who we talked about months ago. Nightmares, post-traumatic stress disorder after World, World War II. And after becoming a Christian, baffled the psychologists. Overnight, the nightmares stopped. And he experienced exactly this. You lead me beside quiet waters. You restore my soul. May Jesus restore your soul today. Let's continue. The staff and the rod. The staff is the second heading with verse 3. Let's read this together. Verse 3, he guides me. Ready? All together. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The word there for paths is, is literally translated, uh, it, 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 the, the notion there is entrenchments. He guides me along entrenchments. Think of a wagon or wagons that have gone down a trail so often that through the mud and then the earth has been hardened, that the wagon has gone, uh, it's created a, a rut, as it were. Entrenchments and deep tracks so that it, if you're steering that thing, good luck turning it once it's down that path. You'll probably break the steering wheel before you move the whole thing. Why? Because it's stuck in a groove. It's in a track. So what's being spoken of here is in a positive sense, he, the shepherd, leads us along entrenchments, along deeply embedded tracks that are good. Healthy behaviors, healthy habits, good things. If you, were, if you rise early regularly enough to pray, to seek God, it becomes something you just do, your eyes open. But that also works in an opposite fashion. If we have entrenched negative behaviors, and I think, I I, I mean, I wish the doc were here to confirm, it's like neuroscience. I think there are ruts in our brains that once we start down a negative path, there's good luck turning that thing. You're going to break the steering wheel because we have behaviors that were set down and it's it's just inevitable that it's going to end up Angry, disappointed, irritable, discontent, afraid, fearful, resentful, lustful, fearful, whatever the vice is. But what he does is he leads us along ruts of righteousness. I believe that reprogramming, reprogramming is part of the Christian life. Reprogramming and taking the wagon and putting it on a different set of tracks on a different set of tracks. That is what the Christian life is about. That's my hope for us. 
He guides me in paths and ruts of righteousness. You know, as sheep, if we can use the sheep metaphor, sheep have behavior problems too. They like to. They're addicted to, according to Laniac, they like, they like poisonous plants. They'll eat weeds that provide empty calories, only empty calories, and they'll kill themselves eating trash. We sheep, we like sheep. It sounds all too familiar. We have ruts that lead to the garbage heap. And instead of the ruts of righteousness, we are used to going this way towards the garbage heap and eating empty calories or eating plastic can holders or something that will clog and destroy and kill us. And what the good shepherd does is he says, no, 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 he uses his staff. And the cool thing about the staff, I'm going to explain it here in a minute. The staff was, it, it, was, it was a root of a tree. And what they did was they heat it while it was still green and still pliable. They would heat it and turn it so that it would form a crook. The staff would form a crook that goes like this. And then with heating and, and, and drying, eventually it became a very sturdy equipment. Such that if you had a wayward sheep, an animal such as myself, constantly going down the ruts of self-destruction, no, 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 not that way. Got to lift him up out of the tracks sometimes. Lift him up out of the tracks and put him onto ruts of righteousness that lead to life, to peace. That's what the staff does. The shepherd has this shepherding implement. Many times, if a lamb is out on a limb, he could use that to lift them up. I mean, I've learned so much about shepherding about pastoral ministry. Sometimes a staff would be used, um, you know, when a baby is born. Uh, <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I've been there on a lot of first days. Right? I'm sure you probably don't want me there when the baby's coming out, right? And neither do sheep. If the shepherd gets too close, so with the staff, he can have a little bit of distance. The staff becomes an extension of his arm. You know what the principle here is? Good shepherds are in touch with their people. Good shepherds are constantly in touch with their people. That's a good management principle too. Take that to the office. And some of these shepherds in the Middle East, sheep numbering thousands, and they know all of their names, apparently. They know all of their names. What does it mean to be a good shepherd? You have a good implement, that's an extension of your arm, and you are in touch with people. You're in touch with your people constantly. There's a, there's a, a great story that Laniac tells of how a shepherd sometimes will, will have his, 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 his staff and he'll rest it on the back of an animal, uh, on the back of a sheep, because it's heavy. So instead of carrying it like this, he'll actually rest the weight of it on the back of a sheep and walk kind of like this. Why? I don't know. Maybe the sheep has a tendency to go astray. And so he has to be in touch with it more. Or maybe the sheep is a special favorite. Maybe the sheep needs a little bit of extra attention. And so he's in touch with it a little bit more. The principle is being in touch. And a good shepherd, and I'm telling you, I learned a lot from this. I was rebuked a lot, but I learned it's about being in touch. It's about loving, loving your people. 
constantly being in touch. But there's another implement, and it's called a rod. These days, shepherds in the Middle East, they, oh, they, they have a staff and they have something else. They don't have a rod. They used rods back in the day. They don't have rods anymore. You know why? Because instead they have AK-47s and Kalashnikovs. Because that's the purpose the rod served, for protection, for defense. Uh, rods were also hardened uh, roots. And at the end, they were bulbous. They were bulbous so that you could use it as a club. And if a, a wolf came along, if a wolf came along, you could defend. But another thing I learned that this is interesting, apparently they could even use the rod as a missile. They could throw it. If there were, were sheep going at it all the time, it's like children, they're constantly fighting, right? You take his, his rod and use it as a missile and, and he could hurl it. <laughs> Stop fighting, right? He could chuck that thing. All to say that the rod, you have the staff, the crook, and you have the rod, which is for discipline. I don't consider myself a heavy-handed man. I hope, I, hope, I hope you don't consider me that way either. But that really is the story of ministry. The story of ministry and caring for people, it's the duality. It's the double-edged sword. On the one hand, you have the rod and on the other hand, you have the staff. It's the careful, careful balance. Now, some, some shepherds, too much rod, too much rod. People don't like that. Some shepherds, too much staff, but not enough rod. It's the careful balance of discipline and care. The careful balance of boundaries, but also freedom. Careful balance of corralling and shepherding. Ministry is hard. Management is hard. Anybody that works with people, it's hard. It's hard. And it requires an extra sensitive touch. Somebody that knows how to, that knows their, that knows their flock, that knows their company, that knows their organization and whatnot. And it also involves knowing both the rod and the staff. You know, I don't want to miss this. Why is the rod needed? Why can't we just be care? Why can't we just have a system of care? Why, why is the rod needed? I, I don't want you to think that I, I would have, you know, I, you know I, I'm not the type of person that likes to pull rank and talk about discipline all the time, but why is it necessary sometimes? Because sometimes, sometimes we wind up in the valley of the shadow of death. Now, in this case, this is circumstantial. The psalmist just happened to wind up there. Sometimes, however, of our own choice, because we went down the bad rut of, right, uh, of self-destruction, we end up in the elephant graveyard. In staff meeting, somebody said, the valley of shadow of death, that sounds like that scene in the Lion King, where Simba's in the elephant graveyard. We're in the valley of the shadow of death. Not always, sometimes of our own making, but sometimes it just happens. But what does the psalmist say? I fear no evil because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, actually they both comfort me. They both comfort me. Knowing that there are boundaries, knowing that there's something that's telling me don't do that, that actually comforts me. Knowing what my limitations are, it comforts me. And so this is a story of the rod and the staff. They are comforting. Even when we are in literally translated the valley of the death shadow the death shadow 
And God forbid any of us will wind up there anytime soon. But even if, even if, and this is where we wrap it up with the story of Jesus, even if we wind up in the valley of the death shadow, and this is the third and last heading, you prepare a table before me. And in what closes off as a very messianic picture, a very prophetic story almost of, of the picture of Jesus to come, even if we wind up in the valley of the death shadow, what does he do? He prepares a table. Jesus said, I eagerly awaited this day so that I could have this meal with you. I no longer call you disciples, but friends. And it's interesting, in the Last Supper, Jesus' host, as he breaks the bread, pours the juice. In this passage, God, Yahweh, is the host. He prepares a table prepares a table. You know what that reminds me of? If I could use a, a vivid illustration, it, it moves me to tears. And there's a, there, if, you've ever, if you've seen the movie Les Miserables, and in the beginning you have Hugh Jackman playing this, this like lice-ridden, scary, hairy convict. I wouldn't want him in my house. I wouldn't feel safe. And he winds up homeless, hungry, cold on the steps of a, not a church, what do you call that, a, a parsonage, the attached building to a church where the bishop lives. And then the bishop opens the door and he begins to sing, Come in, friend, for you are weary. And I forgot the rest. And he starts to set a table in front of this very confused man. He prepares a table. And when he runs away, stealing the silver, lamp, the silver candlesticks, and gets brought back to the church, and the bishop says, yes, I gave those to him as well. I can't help but to weep when I think about the hospitality of God preparing a table for me, the runaway convict that had to add insult to injury and steal the candlesticks as well, and I come back home and I'm still welcomed despite what I have done out there in my wildness, sowing my wild oats, and I come back with my head down, with lice in my hair, having done things that don't bear repeating, and he says, that's right, I gave those candlesticks to you as well. He is a host. He was a guest at my table. I was his host. The gospel message is about preparing a table. God prepared a table for you, and that's why you're here today. But this is shepherding. This is ministry. And this is the fill in the blank. Prepare a table for someone who needs it. Even in their darkest hour. Prepare a table for a friend. Last night, some friends prepared a table for some friends. Do that often. I'm grateful that this week in my destitution and loneliness, when my wife and children were away, tables were prepared for me, a sinner, to come and dine in your home. Tabor, tables are prepared. Tables are prepared for us.
You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And you've anointed my head with oil. And my cup overflows. This is a picture we see later on in Mark chapter 14 where a woman comes in and breaks the perfume and anoints Jesus. You've anointed my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely love and faithfulness, goodness and loving kindness, you can translate that, or I'm sorry, good and love, good and faithfulness. Tov in Hebrew means good. And chesed, I've talked about this before, so you have goodness and loving kindness and faithfulness. It's going to follow me all the days of my life. Every person here is a chance for me to show at my table goodness and loving kindness. And you show it to each other and to guests as well. This is ministry. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But there's one thing. Jesus prepared a table. He was anointed. And then he bled. He bled. And this is the last harsh reality of ministry and shepherding. Because if this was a foreshadowing of what would happen to Jesus, then the good shepherd must bleed as well. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about a young couple, a story of a young couple named Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. The good shepherd must bleed as well. And so the final application, the final fill in the blank, this is ministry leading means bleeding. Leading means bleeding. And I want to read to you one last passage from this book before we have a time of response. We're doing good on time. And this last passage is titled A Living Sacrifice. Think of not only the Lamb, but think of Jesus through this last story. This time I knew I had to do it myself. After studying animal husbandry for a year, I had witnessed the slaughter of many animals. I too, in my mission travels, I've seen it. There's a, there's, I don't need to go into the details, but there's, there's a way they do it. I've seen how they... Anyway. Yet I, this is the author, Laniac speaking, I desired a more direct and even intimate experience with the process. If I'm going to write about shepherding, I have to know what it means to slaughter the lamb as well. Not because I enjoyed killing, but rather for personal and theological reasons, I needed to be the one who slit the throat of a harmless, patient, perfect lamb. I had to be the one responsible for the death. We rightly say that neither Romans nor Jews killed Jesus. Instead, each of us bears the blame for putting him on the cross. We put the nails in his hands, and I needed to express physically what I had done to the Lamb of God. The occasion came in January 2007 when I was back in Israel leading a tour that featured experiential learning. One bright morning in the Jordan Valley, Hazim met us outside his tent and pointed toward the two men waiting with a designated lamb. Our group watched as they turned the full-sized animal on her side and held her gently in place on the ground. She hardly struggled. 
Slaughter has to be done correctly. The cut has to be swift and final so the suffering is minimal. They gave me a knife and I briskly slid it across the sheep's neck but the skin remained uncut. The sheep didn't move. I tried again. Maybe I hadn't put enough force behind my cut. Again, no blood. By this time, our group was painfully aware of how compliant the animal was, just waiting for this amateur to cut its throat. I cried karam to Hazim, suggesting that the slaughter had become disqualified. Hazim urged me to try again, and the lamb waited pathetically for the delayed execution. Our group shuddered as the trauma unfolded. After a third unsuccessful attempt, Hazim examined the knife and admitted that it was dull. What agony for all of us. Finally, after the knife was sharpened, I took the instrument and quickly slit the still passive lamb's throat. There was a great deal of sobbing as crimson liquid poured across the ashen gravel. The lamb's liquid life emptied in seconds while the body quivered. It was difficult to watch, but I had insisted. After some emotionally charged moments of silence, I managed to read a portion of Isaiah 53, and then with tears we sang a song about the saving blood of Jesus. With these words I finish. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, the good shepherd himself. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ever since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Every eye closed and every head bowed. Do you, my brother and my sister, stand beneath the Good Shepherd's blood and the fountain? Do you know what it's like to be cared for? Do you want to know? Do you want to step under the cleansing flow? If so, follow after me as I pray and you can say the words quietly in your heart. God, I see a picture now of your son, his sacrifice, and the price on my life, and the price I, pay, I have to pay. I want to step under the cleansing flow now. Wash away my sins. Restore my soul. Lead me beside quiet waters. I belong to you now. Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd.